All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us again today uh, in the Attorney Lounge. Today's guest is Jim Sullivan. He is the founder at eDiscovery AI. Thanks, Jim, for joining us here in the Attorney Lounge. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. So the 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 history of the Attorney Lounge, I started at a law firm called Snell & Wilmer back in the day. We had an Attorney Lounge and we would go there and take breaks and sort of catch up with people and get to know them a little bit, talk about different things. And so p- part of this is really getting to know you and then getting to know uh, your business at eDiscovery AI. And, and hopefully kind of you can you can help us understand a little bit better about kind of where we're all headed in terms of this convergence of the legal industry and technology and, and kind of where we're at today and then where we're headed. So with that kind of being the lead up, I want to start with with your career, but I've been kind of trying out a new format and hitting people with a little bit of a curveball. I want to ask you something first. A big question, are AI lawyers going to replace real lawyers? This seems to be the topic du jour <laughs> with a lot of a lot of people that I talk to these days. A lot of people are like to tiptoe around it. I, I'm just going to flat out say yes, absolutely. And I don't say that they're going to replace all attorneys for all positions by any means, but there are certainly many positions that will be replaced. No doubt. Yeah. Well, and you can envision a scenario. I mean, there was a, there's a, a tech guy that I, that I, um, follow on Twitter and he was given spicy takes and he said, you know, in five years, you're going to trust your AI lawyer more than your, your real lawyer. And I mean, we see it now with Chad GPT and, you know, the idea that you can get yourself started. It's not the end. You can't rely on it, you know, for everything now, we've seen what happened with those New York lawyers that cited the cases that didn't exist and hallucinations and all that sort of stuff. But it's a good, in, from my perspective, it's a good ideation tool, a way to get yourself thinking about things and asking that, typing in your question into ChatGPT instead of typing it into Google. I mean, you could see how that rapid progression over the next five years could could really be the starting point for a lot of people when they're asking legal advice. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can right now you can go create outlines, can create documents, and it, it's a starting point. You still got a QC. Don't be that guy that that quotes uh, that cites cases that aren't real. It set us all back uh, a ways. But there's already just tremendous amount of use cases, and specifically with what we're doing with with document classification, that's just that's really a job that just does not need humans to do. Where a lot of the analysis, a lot of the drafting of documents, that that's still going to be around for a while. But the, the classification piece, that's just a really low-hanging fruit for, for AI. And I think that's going to be our first major shift as we start then seeing other other roles, other jobs sort of start moving more and more towards those. But I think it's going to be a long time before we're, we're re- completely replacing the attorneys for the um, strategizing and the final work product that, that gets submitted. So... Uh, uh, Rolling with that just a little bit, can you explain a little bit what you mean by classification of documents and kind of tell tell me what that means and and yeah, so our our use case is very focused on e-discovery document review. So it, it, early in my career, I started with doing doc review, like many lawyers out of law school, and you just see this process that even right from the beginning, it was just so inefficient and so broken in my opinion. Just humans are not you know, ideal for this, the, the skill sets are different. Where we're seeing AI is significantly better at classifying documents for relevance than humans right now, without a doubt, we've proven it. It's it's something that's very clear. And the speed, the cost, just it everything, it, it's better. So when we're specifically talking about 
using human contract attorneys to classify documents for production and relevance for your case in any discovery situation. So not the analysis, not the devil prep, not the exhibits, but that classification step where you're simply identifying what's relevant to your request for production or not, that's something that computers are just really, really good at. And that's something that they can do right now significantly better than a person. And I don't see any way that we're going to be able to compete with that as AI gets faster, cheaper, better. It's just a matter yeah. of time. And it's becoming the the more recognized, the credibility of the of the technology, the reliance upon it. I think people are getting more and more comfortable that it is a reliable source. And I mean, just like with humans, you're going to have some level of error. Um, I mean, it's, but it's not even comparable. We're seeing able to identify 95% of the relevant documents, humans identifying 70% of the relevant documents. It's, wow. it, it's so far off where you're right though. The, the biggest difference I've seen with this technology over the past, I, I kind of grew up with the predictive coding tar tools but this one, people can see the results, see how it works. They can use ChatGPT. They can understand in a way that TAR and predictive coding never could get to. So they had a little bit more of a black box. It's just going to work. But here we can see the explanations as to why a document's relevant or not. And I, I think there's going to be a little bit of time before everyone gets comfortable with the technology. But I think the speed of adoption is going to be significantly faster than we saw with, with predictive coding back yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, and then you get these headline scenarios that set us back a little bit where somebody cites a case, doesn't do their diligence in terms of ensuring that they're there, and and that kind of sets it back. But I, I think it's a small bump in the road to where we're eventually headed. For sure. And I, I mean, every time that happens, you cringe a little bit. And a lot of the questions that we encounter are situations that just come up because one thing happened once. An article comes out that OpenAI is using your data to train their model. And then every question is, are you using our data to train your model? Are you? And one small instance then creates this doubt in everyone's mind that we have to overcome. But luckily, end of the day, that it's, it's just really that good that it, it can't lose. I mean, when you talk about using the data to train the model, it's just a matter of fact that when you use a free service, they're going to use your data in a way that you're not going to be able to prevent them. I don't, I don't paste client data into Google Translate. We, we know that if it's free, you are the, you're the product. And so once people kind of get used to that and realize, no, this is just like anything, we have to be using enterprise level tools that are secure. Um, but end of the day, all of the facts really come back to this is a much better situation that is secure, that's reliable, that can do much better than humans in just about every classification job. Yeah, and don't don't we as consumers, well, I, I think people are, they're willing to give up some of their personal privacy in order, in the name of efficiency and expediency. I mean, we type, think, we type questions into Google every day. People are watching videos on TikTok. I mean, it, it's learning about you. It's spitting back the videos you want to see. I mean, if it if it's something that's going to help us do our jobs better, be more efficient in our day to day lives, I think people are are willing to do. I mean, I I get the Apple notice right when I get an update and I just click accept and move on. And I think I think we're all comfortable with that with the way we use technology today. So I don't see that being a barrier that people are concerned about using that model, using your information to improve the model. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the reality is we've, we've shown that we are willing to give up just about all of our, our privacy. But for using AI, we don't have to be using the data to train the model. 
So a lot of situations that, that fear, at least in our use case, there are a lot of different use cases that will use data to train a model in a way that's really effective and helpful. But in our use case, we don't even need to do that. So I absolutely believe that, yes, people are going to be comfortable with that. And the uses that, that are training the model to make it better, make it more efficient will not be a problem at the end of the day, as long as we can just ensure that those safeguards are in that even though it's being trained, used to train a model, that that model still secure private and your data is not going anywhere. Yep. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to sort of veer back to kind of the traditional format of the show and kind of go back a little bit more, learn about you personally. You're you're a lawyer. You went to law school. Tell me a little bit about kind of where you grew up, how you grew up, and and ultimately kind of what I'm interested in is is how you navigated into law in the first place. So I I grew up in northern Minnesota, a small town called called Hibbing. It's a mining, mining town up on the Iron Range. Not, I didn't actually get much exposure to, to law there, but you know, I actually went to school for computer science and that was kind of my passion. Computers, developing things. I, I was making web pages back in high school with, with friends and, and I ended up going to school for computer science and math and did, did great there. But towards the end of my um, time in, in college, that's when I started looking into options of what, what's going to happen next. What should I do here? And that's where law school just really came out as a really viable option that seemed to have a lot of potential avenues for future employment. And it seemed interesting. So ultimately, that's kind of where, where it got into it. And I, what really just came down to, I sat down and took some practice LSAT tests and was like, is this something I can do? And ended up doing pretty good on them and saying, all right, let's give this a shot. But it wasn't something I planned out very much. It was definitely kind of looking through the avenues of what options I had, because end of the day, I didn't really want to be just a straight up developer. I didn't want to be just a straight software programmer. So I was kind of starting to look for other ways. And I, I feel like it is a pretty good mix of skill sets that that is a little bit unique and, and in many ways valuable. Yeah, a lot of people go to law school, I think, with that idea that, hey, I'm, I'm going to go do this for a few years. I'm interested in law, but but maybe I don't want to practice. Mm-hmm. And then that that's, I mean, I, I kind of went into it with more of an interest in law school than an interest in being a lawyer, I guess. And so, and then as I got there, I then navigated into a firm and into a corporate practice and kind of where I'm at today. But the the fact that you can go to law school and that's not necessarily where you need to end up, there's a lot of us that, that go to law school and then, then go off into other areas. It sounds like you kind of approached law school maybe with that same sort of mindset. And- yeah, for sure. And I mean, even though there, most of my career has been in positions where I did not need to be an attorney. I've certainly never regretted it because I do feel like it's opened a lot of doors that that I, I probably just would not have gotten into as not not being a, a practicing attorney. So whether or not it, it ends up being your career path or not, I, I see a ton of value for it. And I certainly wouldn't discourage others from, from going down that route. Yeah, I do too. And I think one of the interesting things too, like given your background with the law is the law is a very traditional practice, very slow to change. And now you've got this very rapid evolution of new technology and how how quickly that can disrupt a very old traditional industry like law. My, I, I practiced as an attorney, but for 10 years, I was a general counsel at a, at a university as well. And higher education, education in general is also one of those very traditional industries that's very slow to change. And so kind of combining those two things, I think, creates a ton of opportunity because you can you can speak law and you can speak technology. And that's that's a very unique combination. My, my wife calls that being a nerd translator. 
to be <laughs> able to relay that. And that 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 is a lot of my career has been basically listening to attorneys what they need and then talking to developers about making that happen. And basically being that conduit that translates the language between the two is is a very good skill to have. Yep. So you 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 went to Mitchell Hamline School of Law and then you end up starting it looks like in a traditional practice in like a law firm life for a few years is that, well, that was, is no, that, that accurate? That was just doing doc review. Just like many wide-eyed attorneys that get out of law school thinking they're going to conquer the world, slipping into doing some doc review while you're kind of looking for your your career role. And that was kind of my first view into the world of doc review and seeing it. And I immediately on day one was just thinking, wow, this is not an efficient way to do things. This is mm. just not the the incentives are all broken. The motivations and the human element of the quality of the work product, the knowledge of the attorneys on the particular subject matter. It it just had so many things that you just look at. And like you say, we're it's a traditional industry. A lot of things are just not changing because it's the way it's always been. And I've always been a person that just does not accept that and just says, here's something that doesn't work. Let's find a way to make it better. Let's find a way to fix it. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of Unfortunately, it's kind of it's disruptive to the to the business model of law firms. Mm-hmm. When technology is going to replace those first, second, third year associates, law firms aren't going to be the the most receptive to make those changes, right? I mean, because the huge source of revenue for the for the firm. Yeah, and we saw we saw with predictive coding that sometimes the incentives didn't necessarily necessarily align in a way that encouraged adoption. But we saw that we can get over that. And we saw the process and how eventually things start moving in the right direction. And people are over to, able to overcome that. And we're seeing that exact same situation here as AI comes out, where a lot of people were kind of resistant at first. Uh, a lot of our discussions really start out with, well, I'm not sure if this is going to be a tool that replaces any contract reviewers. I'm not sure where this is going to fit into everything. At least recently, after Legal Week, it's been all... This is inevitable. Now, how can I get in on this? Or how can my firm or my company make sure that we're set up in a, in a good spot where we can be ready for this change? And so it's much more of the, this is inevitable, it's happening, and we need to be ready more than the, I'm not sure if this is going to be a thing. Yeah, and I think the earlier you can get on board, understanding that inevitability, the better off you're going to be, there's, obvi- there's always going to be a need right for for legal expertise and i i I've, we've all been around long enough to kind of see some of these patterns play out one one small example of that for me early in my career was that attorneys didn't want to the attorneys at my firm did not want to switch from word perfect to microsoft word all of our clients were using microsoft word they would send us documents and we would convert it to word perfect thinking that well I don't know what it was. We're lawyers. We work in WordPerfect and our expertise is so unique that we have to be using this interface. So we, a few of us were like, man, forget that. We're, we're figuring out Word. We're going to, you know, we went to the IT department, got Word uploaded <laughs> and we started communicating with our clients. And so there's just sort of this, this, I don't know, this sort of mental block sometimes with folks to sort of say, no, this is the way I've always done it. And I'm going to keep doing it this way versus keeping an open mind and seeing where the direct, where the industry's headed and then getting on board quick. Yeah, I just don't get it. I just don't get the mentality that just being resistant to change because there's so many benefits to being 
open to change. There's so many benefits to, in a lot of ways, the success of your firm, the success of your company, the profitability, all of these interests generally are in favor of change and being difficult to to move forward on that is really just hurting yourself in a lot of ways. So I think that we're not seeing it as much as we used to with with some of the technologies that have come up previously. Yeah, we've we've seen people that have trying to drag their feet throughout the entire process. Predictive coding, there were so many times where someone would say, oh, we like predictive coding, but we just don't think this is a good fit, where it was just they there there was never a time that they were going to consider it. And and honestly, I think most time they didn't even really understand it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, for, for people that don't know, like explain, explain just a little bit about what predictive coding is too. Yeah. So obviously with, with doc review, you're classifying documents to see whether they're relevant for production. So you have to go through a set of documents, determine what's relevant, what's not relevant, what's privileged, what's not privileged. So predictive coding started out about 2010, I believe, where we're starting to use machine learning strategies to train a model on what documents are relevant or not. And then using that model to predict relevance on the rest of your data set. So essentially, we can have a small set of documents that a expert is going through and reviewing to build this model and then make predictions on the rest of their documents. And as, as we went along, there was a lot of different use cases and strategies that went along with that. And one of the most common was called continuous active learning or prioritized review, where now you're just using coding decisions to build a model, which is then predicting how relevant the other documents are, and then moving the most relevant documents to the front of the review queue. So it's really nothing more than changing the order in which you review documents so the most relevant documents are at the front of the queue. And that's one of the things that we started seeing. There were, there were a lot of people that said, we don't want to use predictive coding on our matter. Don't even talk about predictive coding. I'm not interested. And then when it came time to talk about their, their, their strategy of what categories are they going to use, what what workflow are they going to have? I would ask them, when your reviewers check out a batch of documents, how do you want them batched out? Do you want them batched out in random order, by date, by custodian, or do you want the most relevant documents first? And every single time they said they want us relevant documents first, even when they told me they didn't want to use predictive coding. So once we switch the messaging from let's use predictive coding to do you just want to prioritize your relevant documents? the adoption just went through the roof. I mean, we we started having it. We, we always talked about, you should be using this on every case, every time. There's no reason not to. And once we changed that messaging, it really started to be adopted on, on just about every matter that we came across, which I thought was telling that the technology itself wasn't nearly as scary as the way people perceived it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think you start with kind of what, if, if you start talking with the tech, people get, their eyes glaze over, people don't understand it. But if you just talk about the results and what you're looking for, it tends to make all the difference. And so the perception of it, I think nowadays is changing uh, much more rapidly. And and I think the introduction of chat GPT, so people can kind of see kind of themselves what we're talking about. I think that really helps a for lot. For sure. I, I think a lot of people using it at home, they, just, like, just like a self-driving car where my wife at first was like, there's no way I'm letting this thing drive me. And then you start seeing it, you start really feeling it. And then you start seeing, okay, I start to trust this. I start to rely on this. I start to understand this. And, and frankly, there's, there hasn't really been anything quite as powerful as ChatGPT that a person could just go in and start using and asking questions and, and understanding how it works and understanding how accurate it is. 
I think that that's probably going to be one of the biggest things that moves the adoption as quickly as, as we're seeing. You think, yeah, that, that seems to be to me kind of as well, <laughs> the chat GPT, it's kind of a consumer facing product that people can start to wrap their head around. And once but they it understand it, and they, it, yeah, you know, it and they see the, how, the how it can help so you. well. Yeah. yeah. And it's it like, how is this going to help me? Like, I don't want to understand, like, I mean, I, I turn on the faucet. I don't know how the water comes out. And I don't need to know. I just want it to be clean water. (laughs) And so when people, you you start using it and you start realizing, oh, it's reliable. My water's always clean. I can just start. I don't have to, I don't have to question it every single time I turn the tap on. I don't have to test it. I now start having just confidence that it's working properly. And everyone today is so much more used to technology. I mean, my kid is just using tech all day. Younger generations not having any hesitancy. So I, I've already seen, we, we always talk about how predictive coding took about five years to get general adoption. A lot of it had to do with the case law and not having really any ruling that really supported it. But I think with AI, it's we're, we're looking at six months, 12 months. It's, it's, it's going to happen a lot faster. So what is that next step then kind of beyond predictive coding? Like where, where are we headed now? Yeah, I think the obvious one is just using AI to classify your documents. You have a million document data set that you need to review and produce the relevant docs that aren't privileged. And a lot of people are still putting together a room full of attorneys to go through docs one at a time, spending nine months to go through that review. And right now, we could review a million doc data set in a matter of maybe a day or two. With validation, it might end up taking a week for the whole process. But that that type of leap, I think, is something that once people see that, that's going to start taking over. You're not going to step back and go back to a staffing a 50-person review team to go through a large data set. And that's becoming more and more acceptable to your counterparty as well as the the judge that that's an acceptable method of, of reviewing those million documents, correct? Yeah, when we, we we talk about predictive coding and how predictive coding is basically a way that you're training a model to predict classifications on a large volume of documents. So the De Silva Moore ruling that was 2014, 2015-ish, I think, that basically determined that this is a proper use for technology in document review. Using computers to basically classify documents with being overseen by a subject matter expert who's using validation to properly make sure that all the results are accurate is a defensible and and appropriate means of doing a doc review. And now the only difference between what we have right now and what was discussed at the time of that ruling is what we have now is just way better. I mean, before you had to train a model on positive and negative examples, there's a number of shortcomings regarding foreign language, finding needle in a haystack type documents where now AI can do it all and we can we can validate the results. We can see that the results are so much better that I don't I don't see any reason why there would be a a defensibility issue today. I don't think there's any reason we have to wait for a judge to say you can use this to classify documents. The the De Silva Moore ruling even said that it doesn't matter what your technology is, doesn't matter what tool you're using. What matters is that you have a a very solid process that you're validating and confirming is, is true, accurate and correct. And so. I think we can rely on that ruling to proceed today. And I don't see any reason why we need to slow down or or wait for a different type of ruling to come out. Real quick, I want to recognize our sponsor, Array. Array handles all the details of litigation so that you can focus on winning your case. They take care of forensic collection, e-discovery, managed review, 
record retrieval, court reporting, legal staffing and recruiting, trial support, you name it. I'm the general counsel at Array, so I may be a little bit biased, but I was also a client before I started working there too. I've used them on various matters, and they've always delivered. If you're involved in a lawsuit, make Array your first call, and they'll help you get organized right from the beginning. You can reach out to me or visit TrustArray.com. Now, back to the pod. And what about, you're kind of getting back to a little bit to our earlier conversation. Another another roadblock, I think, or question is, how secure is my documentation in your system? You know, how data privacy, and these are really sensitive documents. I don't want the wrong thing getting out to the public or the wrong thing being turned over to the other side. You're talking about reviewing millions of documents that are going to be turned over. How do, how do we eliminate that concern? Yeah. And frankly, that's that's a concern we've had for a long time. As you're using different tools, different technologies, your data is going to be maintained certain places. And, and that's something that we always have to do our due diligence to make sure that it's secure, it's private, that all the safeguards are in place. And, and we've been spending a lot of time with security, with vendor audits, with ensuring that our processes are, are, are secure. And, and I don't think that I don't think that a, a business would be successful if they couldn't show that. So that's the first step is we always, this is something that's just really non-negotiable. You cannot have any holes in your security. You cannot have any situations where your data is at risk. The only difference with AI is just this concern about using people's data to train models in a way that then subjects that data to potentially being released to other people which is what we saw with OpenAI. Number of examples were basically someone fed in data to ask a question, and then that data was somehow revealed to other users who were asking other things. So basically your data went in through your prompts and came out to someone else's in a way that was not secure. And Mm -hmm. that's the only difference between using AI and any other technology that you might've used in the past. And it just goes back to that fact that when you're using the public free version of ChatGPT, your data is not in any way secure and no one's pretending that it is. So just like just like every other tool, you need to make sure that you're using uh, an enterprise level secure version. And that's what we use. That's what everyone in the industry that's that's using making tools like that is using, because just like Google Translate, just like everything that you're using, you cannot be using public tools for enterprise level security like we have in this industry. Yeah. One one of the interesting sort of practice tips I I, I heard at Legal Week, they talked about the, your partnership with your clients and that we'll, we'll protect, we, we're, we're doing everything we can to protect our clients. It's secure in our uh, system. You go through, you do the discovery process, you call the data down, you come up with a, a data set that then you then turn over to the other side. Now the other side has that. Now they might actually reveal information because they type your documents or or upload your documents into a public-facing, chat GPT, something like that. So getting agreement from the other side that they will also not utilize your data in that in that way was an interesting, when you think of like the stream and the flow of the information and where it's going, it might not be the client, it might not be the firm, and it might not be their e-discovery vendor. Everybody in that chain may do everything in their power and ensure that it's all privileged and protected. But then once you turn some of that stuff over to the other side, then you've got another set of risks. Yeah. And that. that that's something I think that doesn't get talked about, talked about enough because the reality is their incentives to maintain your security, your data are significantly lower than the people on your side. 
But it goes the same with anything. It goes with when there's maybe they're sharing emails within their firm and they're using unsecure methods or they're putting content into publicly available tools to translate, to review, to do whatever. So all the same risks that we've always had are still in play. And it just goes back to making sure that everyone kind of understands best practices, that you just are not using ChatGPT on the free public version for anything for a business standpoint. And I know a lot of law firms are are actually banning the use in, from within their firm. And we, we've actually built a number of custom private and secure versions of, of ChatGPT for law firms that allow them to basically use secure enterprise level tools inside their firm and not just the, the public free versions. Yeah, that was kind of the that was the takeaway. That was sort of one of the predictions was that the the more enterprise level secure AI solutions from firm to firm will become more and more popular. Yeah. Um, And a lot of firms that we talked to at first were kind of like, well, we're going to just put a hold on any AI use because we need to vet everything before we're comfortable with it. And that mostly just meant that they're not going to let their employees use it because, you know, there's always that risk that someone's going to copy something and paste it in a chat GPT and say, summarize this for me or whatever, you know, edit this, this contract. And mm-hmm. so I, I understand why that was necessary. And I'm I'm hoping that we're going to quickly move to a point where people are knowledgeable about the technology and the risks of misuse, where they're frankly just not using free tools and expecting enterprise security on them. Yeah. And I think, and I think the, the putting your head in the sand and just saying, hey, our firm doesn't use AI and that's how we're going to address the situation is just not practical going forward. And it seemed like we were seeing more of that over the last like a year plus ago. And now firms are realizing it's not acceptable. Clients are demanding that the firms be more efficient. They want to see adoption of technology. And as as the efficiency shows up in their, in their bills, (laughs) I think it's going to be more and more uh, customer driven. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just can't wait for when it's becoming normal where you have you have a case with 200,000 documents that lands on your desk on Friday and on Monday morning you've identified every key doc and summarized them and put put it on the partner's desk. I mean, once they start seeing that and they realize that that was done at a cost that was a fraction of what they're used to, then it's just those eyes get open really fast. And yeah, and, that, and the one the one use case that we that we also love for that is if you can review all your documents in 2 days, you can wait until later to review your documents. So at what point does the strategy come into play of saying, well, this case might settle. We don't want to invest a ton of money into doc review or the discovery process when we can basically validate all of our AI instructions and prompts, be entirely defensible, and then just wait to run it across the rest of our data set and save a tremendous amount of money where then, yep, if the case doesn't settle, we can click the button and review the rest of the docs. Just a lot of tools that I think lawyers are going to love to see they're going to be able to find those key docs a lot easier. They're going to find them faster and they're going to have more options with regards to strategy because of the speed in which the tool is able to work. So let me ask you this then. So it, it this was, like you said, this kind of, you started your career doing doc review. Like, so what happens to first and second and third year associates when they're new in the law firms? Now, wh- where do they spend their time? If If AI and these tools are doing all of what they used to do now, how do firms keep them engaged and how do you learn early in your career? Cause that's a lot of what you're working on. That is, I think a realization that we're all going to have to 
come to and realize that like I started right out of law school with using Doctor View as a way to basically survive while you're looking for that first career. Everyone I worked with was looking for other jobs, trying to kind of figure out where they fit in. I think that's going to be largely gone. You're still going to have, there's still a lot of review for the the people in the law firms where they can do research on a case, they can investigate, they can put together deposition information prep and put together exhibits. But that role where you have a contract reviewer, only job is to classify documents for relevance. That job just can't exist because there's just no real reason or justification for it. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see where that, how that transition occurs. I think it's inevitable, but it's the, it's, it's, it's our job as, as lawyers, like it's, it's the firm's job to figure out ways to keep, to, to keep young attorneys engaged and, 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 and busy and productive in alternative ways. And when as a corporate lawyer, where I started my practice, I was doing a lot of working on schedules, right? You're, you're cranking through bankers boxes of diligence, and then you're drafting schedules to purchase the mergers, merger agreements or asset purchase agreements, whatever. And you're sort of building the schedule list and you could, while you're working on the schedule, you could kind of, you could also see how the pieces all fit together in the larger deal. So you're being productive. You're doing something that has to be done. It's not hugely substantive from a legal standpoint, but it's work that has to be accomplished to complete the deal. And then you you kind of learn how the, as as someone put it to me early in my career, you learn the steps to the dance. And so uh, how we keep younger attorneys in, involved in that, learning the steps of the dance, um, is going to be different. But that's that's on our that's that's on our end of responsibility, the law firm. It's not the client's responsibility. Yeah, it's like you can't you can't have jobs just because. Um, right. But yeah. I, the, the one really powerful thing I see in the future is th- there is a, there does need to be a person whose role is to kind of be the the puppet master, the manager of the entire process where we talk about how AI classifies documents, but you still have to identify what your issues are. You still have to validate the results. You have to test your instructions across different data sets. And then you have to sort out, okay, so here are our documents that we now have to do review for privilege. And here are documents we need to redact. And here are the outlying documents that maybe were too large for AI to handle now. And and there's just a lot of pieces that you have to be putting together. And there's so many tools out there that are going to, still, we're still going to use keyword searches for calling. We're going to use threading, deduplication. All of these pieces that are all kind of working together, you, you, we're going to need to have a person or a small group of people that are kind of overseeing it all, understanding which tools are the best for which use cases. I mean, we're you're talking about using keywords to, to call out non-relevant documents at the beginning of a review, maybe using threading into duplication to get that data set down a little bit. And then we have AI review the docs, possibly with predictive coding to call the data set even further, and then handling all those different outliers or second level passes. It, it does require a person who is very knowledgeable about the law as well as technical and understanding all the tools available to them. And I think that, that that job where you're kind of the one person review or maybe three person review, that's that's kind of the way that I see the future going. Instead of thinking about it as replacing lawyers, I think that it's creating opportunities and it's creating a lot of opportunity for people that are willing to to roll up their sleeves and learn how this all works because you're going to need that person to sort of manage this whole process. And just like we talked about at the beginning, it's going to have to be somebody that can speak law mm-hmm. and technology. Exactly. Um, and I think that's going to get more and more valuable. 
That's right. If I was a young attorney right now, I would be going all in on understanding the tech side so I could basically run an entire review myself with different tech tools. That would be just the value of that would be tremendous right now. Yeah. And you're going to get exposure then to high profile litigation. You're going to, from that standpoint, you're going to see the steps to the dance. You're going to get more exposure. You're going to be hugely valuable to the client and to the partners. And, and then from there, you start to develop your own book of business. You start to move up the chain. You start to first chair some of these, these cases and stuff, but getting your foot in the door and getting exposure to some of these cases that, that everybody wants to be a part of. I think it's, it's from the technology angle that you're going to get there. For sure. So going back a little bit, I'm, I'm going to retrace steps a little bit. You, you worked at, at KL Discovery for nine years, and that's kind of where I, I'm assuming you kind of started to develop this expertise. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So when I first started, it was Kroll on track before the merger happened. I'm not sure. I don't remember what year the merger was. We had a lot, we had a lot of different ownerships while I was there. But one thing I really appreciate was that they were very early adopters for predictive coding machine learning tools. So we were one of the first to have technology that, that supported it. We really got out there and promoted it to the market. And we had a li- we went through the, the pains of trying to get adoption and people's uncertainty of around the law and the different aspects of it. But we were able to get a ton of traction. And, and I ended up working on a team that all we did was consult on predictive coding and analytics and trying to make reviews more efficient. And we really just I mean, saw just about everything around how people wanted to use this, what what people's pain points were. I think in all, we supported well over a thousand different cases using predictive coding in every way possible. We participate in different studies. We spoke at a number of events, really just fully engaged in this. And And I saw this as kind of that first step of let's make this doctor review process more efficient. Let's get rid of, let's let's eliminate some of the unnecessary waste that we're seeing in that strictly manual review and start to get a little bit better. And we saw some of that with the continuous active learning, prioritizing reviews. A lot of second requests would just do a training and produce documents without review. And then we started seeing people that were even willing to do that on, on regular cases. I I always hear that people say that predictive coding didn't quite take off like they expected or that the market thought, but what I saw was that there is a number of people that were using it on every case and, and saving an incredible amount of money. And there were a number of people that just weren't looking at it at all. I know some people that their their budgets went from $40 million a year spent on eDiscovery to 12. And most of that savings came just from doctor review and the cost savings with predictive coding. So it still was incredibly effective, incredibly valuable tool that we'll be using for, for a very long time. But that was kind of that first step in slowly getting us to the point we're at now and getting people comfortable with the technology that, honestly, without that step, we'd be in a situation that would be a lot harder to get people to adopt things now. Yeah. And I view it as a huge competitive advantage, too. If you're, if you're willing to roll up your sleeves, figure this stuff out and tackle it, like you can, you can drive a, a huge efficiency in the way you manage your case and you can create a massive competitive advantage for yourself. That's what I... I, I... I see that as that should be the first thing everyone thinks of when they're seeing this is how can I be the best at this? Because one thing we were a little concerned with early on was all of these companies have so much invested into traditional doc review that they seem to be either dragging their feet or intentionally trying to delay the adoption of AI. And I'm seeing it as I'm talking to more people, it's just a matter of you're you're only going to hurt yourself if you don't get into this early. And most importantly, it's not about just diving in blindly. 
it's about starting to put together your processes where what we're starting to see with just about every company we're working with is it starts with they put together a team of people that are looking to investigate different AI use cases. They start looking at different tools like ours and others and start to get an idea of what they want to use. And then they really start sit down and put together a strategy for as a firm, as a software provider, how are we going to use this in our in our company? How are we going to offer this to our clients? And then put together that actual plan for, okay, who's going to support this? Who's going to be the one that's actually running it inside of whatever tool we're using? Who's going to sell this? What are salespeople have to know? How are we going to train our salespeople to be knowledgeable and answer those questions? And so it really is a, a process that you need to go through. So you really are vetting things out and not doing things irresponsibly. And the, the earlier you get started on that, the better. Don't don't wait until you have a client, your biggest client comes in and says, hey, what do you have for AI? We want to start using it because if you do it that way, you're going to make mistakes. Where if you start early, you really put together a thorough process and, and make sure that everyone's trained up on what they need. You're going to be in a great spot to, to be able to jump on it when those opportunities come up. Yeah, and I think one of the issues I see today is my inbox is flooded with AI, like AI sales calls, sales emails, like separating the wheat from the chaff, right? Like what's real, what's just like a a skin that's put over top of just chat GPT? Like how do you, what's your advice for, for clients or law firms that are saying, I know I have to do this and I want to get started, but help me under, help me figure out where to begin. Yeah. The biggest piece is that there's not like, oh, we're going to adopt AI and we're, we're, that's our that, that's our firm stance. It's actually there are a lot of different use cases that we see out there, and you you go to Legal Week and you see tons of different solutions, and and all it comes down to is what problem is this tool trying to solve? And for the most part, from the e-discovery perspective, we put things into two buckets. One is this is a fact-finding investigation tool where you're using AI to learn about your case. You're there to ask questions about who was involved in different products and being able to get immediate feedback with citations incredibly valuable tool, great way to learn about your case, understand things. And then we have our tool and others that are basically doing the review and classification. Now, these are two completely different areas, completely different tools, and you have to be able to address them separately and say, okay, what what do we need in this in this area? What do we need in this area? As well as if you want to use ChatGPT at your firm, what are we going to use for our secure in-house AI option that we can just ask questions that we can feed documents into? Not number of tools that will analyze contracts and just do a lot of different things. But it's not just I'm going to use AI and now we turn it on. It's there's different tools for different use cases and different problems. And we have to go through each and figure out what can this do to help our firm and what areas do we really need the help. And that's why we feel like just being laser focused on Classifying documents for doc review as our starting point is just a very, very clear approach to make sure that people aren't confused or trying to figure out what it is that we're offering. I've seen just so many tools that are just come out and say that that's just solving a different problem than we are. Yeah, this is where, too, I think that this explosion of legal ops has become really valuable. I mean, it sort of touches on the same thing we were talking about a little bit before, but maybe from an in-house perspective, which has been my experience where I've, I've been the last 20 years of my career as, as the general counsel of a few different companies and relying on legal ops to sort of vet all of these different technologies, understand who's out there, go through a little bit of a 
beauty contest in terms of vetting different vendors and understanding and learning what they can do and getting pricing and all that stuff. It's a, it's a huge headache, but there's a lot of people that, that are figuring this out and they're, they're, they're not lawyers either. I mean, there's a lot of people that just understand tech. They understand the law, maybe paralegals or people that have been project managers around law. They understand how this, the pieces all fit together and they can go through that process and figure it out drive a ton of efficiency across a number of things. I mean, I'm a corporate securities lawyer, so there's a lot of things as a publicly traded company that you have to deal with every year in terms of your annual meeting and preparing all your your 34 act reports with your Ks and your Qs and proxy statements and all that sort of stuff. And you get a million vendors hitting you up just in that little sort of slice of what you have to do every day. Then you got litigation, you got contract management, you got insurance, you got... so. As a sitting from a GC perspective, it's not just litigation that we're dealing with. I mean, there's a million different things that you have to be aware of and, and focused on. And, 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 and so having people in that role of legal ops that can help you sort through that stuff, I just think is, is hugely valuable. And I think it creates a massive opportunity for people that I'm, for I, sure. I, I think is going to be big. The, the, the firms that, that I've seen do the best job are putting together you know, they'll call it an AI task force or whatever you want to call. And they're putting together a group of combination of legal experts with tech experts that are basically tasked with let's learn about all these different tools. Let's vet these different tools. Let's test them. And so as we're going through the process of putting together a strategy for their firm, this team is vital in understanding that piece. And I've seen a lot of firms starting to do this as well as end clients and, and vendors as well that they're, they're putting together this this group of people that are really there just to evaluate it. And I think that's a really smart approach. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, I'm going to combine kind of two topics here. I want, tell us a little bit about your company, eDiscovery AI, and then talk a little bit about just being an entrepreneur in the legal industry. Like how, what led you to start this company? And then kind of what, and what do you, what, what problems are you trying to solve? Yeah. Well, just to get started with entrepreneurship, I mean, so when I left, when I left Kale Discovery in 2018, I went to go work with a partner of mine that I'd worked with for a little bit in the past to run basically a software company. And I, I love building things. I love tech. I love coming up with solutions. My, my favorite thing to do is for someone to come and say, Hey, I have this issue that I'm struggling with. And how can you, what can you offer me as a solution to this? And what can we build and, and put together some options, if anything? So that's 2018s where it really started. I've always just loved building stuff. I mean, I'm, I've definitely a little bit more tolerant to risk than most attorneys. I, I don't like to think that I'm out there taking risks as much as looking for opportunities that are good, sound decisions. So when with our software company, we started working on AI tools when AI came out. Really, I've always been interested in technology, seeing new things. So when when these clients came to us, and we mostly work with small businesses, and most of them were in the service industry, plumbers, painters, electricians, they'd come to us and they'd say, hey, I have this, this problem. It started becoming more of a, well, here's a solution that we can use AI for. Here's a solution now. We can have AI generate comments and respond to people. Or if you're a one-person painter, we can have text messages auto-responded to with different topics. And we started using AI as a way to create solutions. And that's that's what got us to this point where we started using AI for classification on different things. And it was like, well, hold on a minute. This is just doc review. 
So that's when the wheels started turning and saying, well, okay, let's, let's do some testing. Let's see how this works and found out that it's phenomenal. The ability to classify documents is just absolutely perfect. So that's what got us started. I went to my partner and said, this is an opportunity I think we're really should be looking at and considering. And I, I kind of explained to him how everything works and everything. And, and <laughs> he's like, I'm in, let's do this. So he, he's, he's, a, he's a technology guy and, and sees opportunities as well. And the biggest thing for me is as a guy who's been through computer background with some law experience that's done some doc review that spent a decade trying to find better ways to do doc review, I just could not ask for a better situation to come along where now I'm running a business, we have this opportunity that's using technology, the skill set that I've worked on for 10 years, and just having everything kind of merged together in a perfect timing. And luckily, this didn't happen 10 years ago when I was just out of law school, or I didn't have many, I didn't, I, will, I wouldn't be able to take advantage of the opportunity. But that's really all it was, all these pieces coming together at the perfect time where this opportunity just jumped out at us. And and we said, let's go for it. I, I talked to a number of people in the industry about just generally speaking, what are some of these hurdles going to be? What things do we need to consider? The first thing we did was we went out and said, okay, from a security and privacy standpoint, what things do we need to do? Because that's going to be a huge priority for us to just to be successful. So it all just sort of came together at the perfect time where the combination of, I feel like every single step up to this point has played some role in this company, whether it's understanding doc review or computer programming, or predictive coding, or building software. It, it's just it's a, such a great mi- um, mix of skills for me and for a couple other people that we that we have working for us that we brought in on this project. Yeah, it's and, kind of a convergence of experiences throughout your career that are just led to this moment, and now here you are. And so, how did how did Legal Week go? Were, uh, were did you get a lot of interest? Legal Week is fantastic. I had a blast. I mean, I've been at Legal Week, you know, back legal tech for a, a number of years. And this is the first time we got to put in our own thing. And it was exciting. And it just talking to people, obviously, is something I really love. And we got a lot of interest, a lot of excitement. It, it really was everything I'd hoped it would be. We always kind of expect that there's going to be some hiccups or problems. And, and fortunately, we just we had a fantastic everything came together really well. I'm really happy with our our marketing turned out fantastic. Thanks, Naima. She put everything together perfectly. So really happy. I think that that was really helped us get extra traction. And, and we, we're already seeing the the results of that coming in now. Yeah, you can kind of create some momentum there. And for those that don't know, Legal Week is sort of like the the technology conference for the legal industry. And it happens in New York every year. And I went uh, for the first time this year being someone oh. that's new to this industry. So I was walking the show floor, meeting people, kind of doing some of that stuff. It was it was a, an eye opener for me. I, I just think it's it just going to get continue to get bigger and bigger for all the reasons that we've we've already discussed. And 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 as we sort of run out of time here, the, the, I want to get to in addition to all this other stuff you're doing, you're you're a founder, CEO, running your own business, doing all this stuff, staying on top of tech. Uh, you're also writing books. Tell me a little bit about, you've written two books now, as I understand it. And so how, how did that all come about and how difficult is that to do? <laughs> well, the first one actually came out, we were, I was consulting on this team, basically explaining predictive coding to people every day. And it was always the same questions, the same responses. I just felt like I was putting together the same content of what's recall, what's precision, how do we validate our result? What's, what's TAR 1.0? What's TAR 2.0? It's just all of these buzzwords, all of these things that came up. 
And we said, let's just put together all of the answers to those questions and put it into a book. And I, I actually worked with a colleague of mine who, who did a fantastic job. And we a lot of what I did was I just took emails that I had written people in response to questions and started compiling that into basically a format that here's the questions that were coming up and here's what you have to know in order to understand predictive coding. And the goal was to simplify it in a way that anyone could come in and say, all right, I read this book. I now understand what this is, how to use it, particular use cases. One of the biggest things that you know, that I feel like with books is I want to be as really, really simple as we can in explaining what this is in, in simple terms without trying to use any complicated language. To, lawyers love to sound fancy, but the same thing then happened with the second book where we're, we're giving demos, we're talking to clients, and we're running cases with AI. Same exact questions are coming up. Questions that we've already talked about a lot about, oh, what about hallucinations? How secure is my data? How does AI work? How do I validate the results? And just making sure that all of those answers that we get asked in all of the demos, all of the introduction meetings we have, let's put that in a book so people can just understand the true answer to each of those questions in a really simple format. So we wanted to get that out before Legal Week just because we thought that would be something that would be great to hand out. But, you know, a lot of the th things is people are trying to figure out how are we going to use AI for our, our doc review? How can I use this technology? A lot of people are just putting out technology saying, here's a cool tool, but they're not really trying to solve a particular problem or have a specific use case. So we want to be just very, very clear on here are some workflows that we would recommend for using AI in doc review. Here's how you start. Here's how you put together your instructions for what you're asking for to the large language model. Here's how you run it. Here's how you validate the results. Here's how you calculate how well it's doing and sort of wrapping it all up nicely so people can understand. Because I, one thing that I really struggle at myself and I walk around Legal Week and I see just all these different tools and half the time I ask myself, I'm like, I don't understand what that does. <laughs> like, what is it that you are providing? And I go to a website and I see all of these big words and it's just like, I need you to just simplify. What is the value add that you have here? What problem are you trying to solve? And we just want to be very, very clear on what we what we were doing and what the value was with our tool. Yeah, I love that. I always think that the best educators are the one that can take a very difficult, complicated subject matter and boil it down in a way that anybody could understand it. And if, if you're able to do that, I think to me, it just demonstrates that you have a, a, a strong command on the topic. And so, and, and it, and it's what we're there as service providers to do is to solve people's problems, not to impress them with our vocabulary. So really trying to boil it down to its, its core essence of this is, this is the problem that we're solving and this is how we can do it, I think is just hugely critical. And it, it, it can be, it can be the difference between success and failure for a company as well. Exactly. We wanted just to make sure that people knew that this for us, we, we were one of their first companies in the space. We were one of the first ones putting out tools before everyone else was talking about how they were coming soon. And a lot of the feedback we got was, I, I go and I talk to other vendors and they're figuring out stuff. I asked them how we're going to do certain things. And there's a lot of like, we're not sure yet, or we're still kind of putting it together. And we just want to make it very clear that we have thought this out very, very well. We've been putting together workflow strategies how we're going to make a defensible sampling techniques, how we're going to use predictive coding along with AI, how we're going to use the other technologies like threading, deduplication. And this is not just, uh, yeah, we're, we're just sort of 
throwing something out there, trying to figure it out as much as we we have developed our strategy for a lot of the things that people are still working on. And we have a very good idea of how things are going to go and how, how we can use this. Well, I certainly don't think for a second that we're not going to learn a whole lot more and a lot more strategies for how we can use it to save time and money. But we're certainly at a point where I think this is game ready. This isn't, we're still going to see how we can figure it out and hopefully have a solution down the road. Yeah. Well, and, and I think sometimes you just have, you start on a lot of people don't ever get over that hurdle. They're constantly researching and. Well, I mean, ultimately that absolutely, we need to just start and go for it, but we know that I can't, I can't be asking the law firms. I can't be asking the end client to just start and hope that it works out for them. We need to have all those solutions ready for them. So when they are ready to start, we already have it all mapped out. Yeah. And, and, and to the point of like keeping things simple, I really appreciate the title of your two books. So for anybody that wants to go get those, the first one is called the book on predictive coding, which is perfect title. <laughs> and the second one is the book on AI doc review. So you even kept the title simple, straight to the point. You want to learn about these things, get these books. You'll learn what you need to know. That was, again, ultimately, it's let's not be too fancy with what we're doing. We always had a joke at, at Kale Discovery at a colleague named Brandon, and it was always, we need to explain it so Brandon's mom would understand. <laughs> and actually, I met her at an event he had last year, and I finally got the, yep, this is Brandon's mom that we have to put it down to a level where, because the, a lot of, the other thing with lawyers is a lot of them don't ask questions or they, they, a lot of times it's almost a negative to ask questions. I've been on a number of calls that have been really productive where you have people asking questions and firing away and then a partner joins the call and it just stops. And yeah. so I just want to make sure that we're not, you know, we're not tiptoeing around. Let's just get the information out as easily as simple to understand as we can. So if people have questions, they can get their answers. Yep. Well, and I, I hope Brandon's mom listens to the podcast and tells me whether or not this was a good episode. And I'll if be she sending her a link. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. Well, I think uh, we're running out of time. So anything we didn't cover that uh, you think we should talk about here before we close up? No, I think this has been great. I uh, covered everything I was looking for. Had a blast. Yeah, awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on on the show and, and joining us. Really cool company. I think it's there's a ton of opportunity going forward. And I think just you're at a great spot um now to to grow this thing going forward so thanks everybody for joining us today please remember to subscribe to the attorney lounge podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify youtube or wherever you get your podcasts i want to thank array for sponsoring the podcast today and making this possible for more information on them please visit their website at trustarray.com jim sullivan thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it thanks